0: Sir George Gardner mentioned in his introductory talk to this series the first direct crossing of the Atlantic by Alcock and Brown in 1919 and the winning outright of the Schneider Trophy in 1931. These two historic events were to foreshadow the course of this mixed period. For now, the aeroplane was to become an accepted vehicle for world transport and, on the darker side, the Schneider Trophy winner was to help father the modern single-seater fighter and establish the aeroplane as the decisive weapon of war. Now you're going to hear of the great pioneering flights by Sir Alan Cobham in discussion with Raymond Baxter when he blazed the trail for the airlines of the future. We shall also hear the personal recollections of one of Britain's master transport pilots, Captain O.P. Jones. But first, I shall ask Sir Graham Sutton Director-General of the Meteorological Office to tell us something of the science on which the safety of so many of the world's long-distance aircraft depends. Sir Graham Sutton.
1: An aircraft flies in a three-dimensional atmosphere and thus the pilot requires information about winds, clouds and temperatures at all heights. Before the First World War, meteorologists, although they were very conscious of the importance of the upper atmosphere, relied mainly on surface observations for their forecasts. But winds at the surface often bear little or no relation to the winds aloft. For example, it's quite common for an easterly wind near the ground to be replaced by a westerly wind higher up. Balloonists and the early flyers had also experienced upward and downward currents in the atmosphere. But there was little exact knowledge of their speed which we now know can be very great in the vicinity of thunderstorms. It was the Norwegian meteorologist who really brought the third dimension into meteorology as a result of their work during the 1914-18 war, when Norway was neutral. This work you may have heard of as the Polar Front Theory. A front is a region of concentrated weather, marked by low cloud, continuous rain or snow, and sharp changes in wind speed and direction. According to the polar front theory, depressions form when great waves of cold, dry air from the polar regions collide with currents of warm, moist air from the tropics. In the early days of aviation, fronts were a hazard, for they often meant squalls, thunderstorms, and other unpleasant manifestations of the energy of the atmosphere. The coming of the polar front theory not only gave meteorologists a way of analyzing weather charts by which regions of severe weather can be located and their rate and direction of travel predicted but it also showed how winds at the surface are linked with winds aloft such a link is provided by the distribution of temperature in the intermediate air layers a modern aerological chart shows not only areas of high and low pressure the familiar anticyclones and depressions but also regions of high and low temperature such temperature differences cause what are now called thermal winds and it is the thermal winds which when added to the surface wind gives the upper winds i mustn't forget to mention also that about 1924 british meteorologists discovered more or less by accident, that at great heights, about five or six miles up, there often exist very swift, narrow rivers of air which we call jet streams. At first these were thought to be freak winds, but we now know that they occur regularly. Since jet streams may have speeds up to 200 miles an hour, you will see how essential it is for even a modern aircraft with plenty of power in reserve and a large farewell capacity to have accurate information about winds. It's also necessary that the pilot shall know the conditions at the end of his journey, especially if there's a danger of fog. We have also discovered a great deal about the physics of clouds and how ice can form on aircraft. Much of this knowledge has come from the work of the meteorological research flight of the United Kingdom and has proved invaluable to the designers. Another feature of the atmosphere which is important for aircraft is the unsteadiness of the wind. In the early days the engineer knew little about the sudden stresses to which a machine can be subjected in flight, but by installing accelerometers in aircraft and turning them into flying laboratories, we've been able to measure the turbulence of the upper winds. This has resulted in that aircraft are now being built with a large margin of safety. But it's in those early days, that is, in the 1920s, that Sir Alan Cobham pioneered the routes which were to be used later by the world's airlines. And here now, in the studio, is Raymond Baxter to interview
2: Sir Alan Cobham. Sir Alan, when you were making your first flights to places where no aeroplane had ever been, what, do you think, were the greatest problems which confronted you? First of all, one was flying into the unknown as far as weather was concerned. There were no proper weather reports. couldn't even phone ahead if you, if you were going across Europe or across Asia. So you were flying into possibly a, a snowstorm, or you were flying into a sandstorm or into low cloud, It was quite an adventure. Then, of course, the great problem of organizing the route ahead, because there were no landing grounds in many cases, and so you had to sort of conduct a correspondence course to an entire continent on the subject of aviation, how to make a landing ground. Then again, uh, we were getting over the period of engine failure, but you always had it in the back of your mind that the engine might stop at the wrong moment. We hadn't got the... Although I wasn't let down on the big flights with engine failure, it was always there in the back of one's mind. And there was only one engine. And only one engine. But despite these tremendous problems, you nevertheless established the first air charter service in the world, did you not? That's right. January 1st, 1921, Stag Lane Aerodrome did have an aircraft Company. and It quickly developed into a concern of about a dozen pilots and... So we went further afield. I remember I did a tour around Europe, and then a tour around the Mediterranean. And then came the day when Sir Sefton Branker had to go to India. And I said, well, when do we start? And he said, "What well, shall we fly there? What's it going to cost? Well, we worked that out, and it was fifteen hundred pounds. And he said, well, I don't think we've got the that amount of money. So I sailed into Lord Thompson and said that the director of civil aviation
3: should go by air.
2: He said the fare costs seven fifty by p and I'll give you that as a contribution. <laughs> so I had to hawk the rest. <laughs> but that flight taught me one thing, that by going there and coming back, it was a good demonstration that flying was a practical proposition. So I then organized a flight to the Cape and back. That was a nightmare in many ways, because there were no landing grounds at all. I had to persuade commissioners to prepare vast tracts in the bush, about 800 yards square is what I wanted, and um, that was a a big job. Well, on those flights, every landing was an adventure, because one never knew what you were going to meet. Mm -hmm. You may have issued all the instructions in the world, but you might land on a semi-bog and tip up, or... Yes, you did once. Yes, didn't smash the prop, fortunately. And then there's the time when I landed at a place and got out of the cockpit and sunk up to me waist in in an ant hole, which I'd missed by inches, and and that sort of thing. Nevertheless, you had this brilliant idea of flying from Rochester to Westminster via Australia in a flying boat. A a, a seaplane, actually. A seaplane, it was the... Same aeroplane that had flown to the Cape and back, fitted up with a couple of floats, and we flew to Australia and back as a demonstration that this job could be done. The whole idea was to land in front of the House of Parliament to try and wake people up to the, effect, to, 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 to the fact that uh, flying was a feasible proposition. Mm. And um, I suppose that flight, we had many adventures on the way there and back, and I think that the good Lord was very good to me on many occasions. So, from your work, and I'm sure you would agree, from that of other gallant pilots of the same epoch sprang the air routes of the world. And these, too, had their commercial trailblazers, men, for instance, like Captain O.P. Jones.
3: Well, I certainly did have a share in the early days on those routes, but we, of course, uh, ran scheduled passenger services. Or tried to anyway. It was not until December 1926 that, with a new type of three engine airliner, the de Havilland 66, the first section of an Empire route to India was operated. And this was between Cairo and Basra, at the head of the Persian Gulf. Now, these landing grounds would have been very difficult to find if a local had not been stationed at each one, and his sole duty was to light a bonfire at every sight or sound of any aeroplane. With a few navigational aids, flying was nearly all within sight of the ground, and on the featureless desert between Transjordan and Iraq, a gigantic furrow was ploughed for hundreds of miles, along which we used to fly. The stages were short, only two or three hundred miles, due to the limited range and uh, some places the petrol in drums was buried in the sand with no staff at all. So it uh, fell to the lot of the pilot and the flight engineer, who who were the only members of the crew, to transfer it up to the tanks by pumping. Now passengers had to be accommodated overnight, there was no night flying in those days, and sometimes they were put into rest houses consisting of thatched or tin-roofed mud huts and guarded against uh, wild animals, of course, by Zerebos, or fences. These poor facilities were matched by suspicion, or even fear of the aeroplane, by the local inhabitants in many places. And I will remember an incident returning from Karachi, which illustrates this, in the early 30s this was, and uh, landing at uh, Bahrain on the Persian Gulf, I got stuck in the sand, right up to the axles. It was a very poor landing ground. Now the station staff worked very hard with spades and planks trying to dig me out, but finally they had to give up owing to the sun setting. Next morning, we heard that the Sheikh of Bahrain had offered us manpower and two long ropes. So we tied these ropes to the axles, stationed a hundred men along each, instructing them, of course, through an interpreter, to pull when the station manager dropped his handkerchief. And at the same time, I opened up all four engines. Now, the result was very surprising. This land was noted for strange meteorological phenomena, but never before have I seen two sandstorms going in opposite directions. One was caused by the propeller slipstream, and the airplane didn't move an inch and the other came from the heels of 200 men running towards the horizon. But they all came back eventually, and after lunch we tried again, but with a notable addition. The 201st, in the shape of manpower, was the local witch doctor, and he talked to the crowd, and he danced and sang to them and gave them confidence, with the result that even with the roar of the exhausts, they pulled away on the ropes, and we are on hard ground within several minutes. Now, since the war, most of my flying has been on BOAC's North Atlantic route, and during those long hours of the night, I've had plenty of time to think about those early days on the old Empire routes, and also time to realize how far we have progressed since those early days.